Hi, everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment where life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Jack Oralnik from the University of Maryland School of Medicine and Dr. Charlotte Peterson from the University of Kentucky. They both recently joined us for the second webinar in the Science of Aging series, which is a joint webinar series brought to you by Inside Scientific and the American Physiological Society. Their joint presentation discussed sarcopenia, the physiological mechanisms underlying the disease, and the current avenues of treatment and assessment being researched and developed for patients. Let's dive in. first question here is, what is the incidence of diagnosed sarcopenia in otherwise healthy 70 to 80-year-old individuals? I assume that question is directed to me. This is a, a really excellent question, and I don't know the answer to that. First of all, as I said, we don't have a final agreed-upon definition of sarcopenia. And to identify a cohort of healthy people at that age and then follow them for sarcopenia, I, I, I don't believe has been done. Certainly we have looked at healthy people in terms of change in strength and change in muscle mass as measured mostly by DEXA. And it's really quite pronounced how muscle mass and strength do go down with age, even starting as, as low as the mid-30s with accelerated decline as we get older. So if you're talking about incidence, first of all, you need to look at exactly what age you're talking about because it's going to be higher when you look at people in their 80s than people in their 60s. You know, it's going to be in, you know, it's, it's not going to be a large incidence, but since this is not a condition that, that leads to death in itself, there will be an accumulation of people over time even with a small incidence. So your prevalence will, will go up um, gradually during old age. Okay, great. Charlotte, this question is for you. What was, I'm oh, sorry, the metformin treatment, was that in healthy individuals? It was. Everyone had, they were non-obese for the most part, below a BMI of 30, healthy, normal glucose tolerance, so not pre-diabetic. So yes, they were healthy individuals. Okay, great. And this question, uh, I guess, is for both of you. Is sarcopenia a loss of cell number or cell volume? Well, I can, I'll start that, Jack, and you can chime in. So it's primarily, it's both. So that what you see first is an atrophy of existing fibers, so that existing fibers lose area. But there is a considerable evidence, both in mice and in humans, that over time you see a denervation phenomenon, and that can lead to a switch of fiber type to if those fibers are re-innervated, and if they're not, then they're lost. So it's actually both an atrophy of existing fibers and a decrease in the number of fibers. I've said the functional consequences of sarcopenia are really what's important at a clinical level. And we do know that not only fiber size, not only does fiber size decrease and numbers decrease, but muscle quality also decreases with time. There's that infiltration of fat in the muscle that reduces quality and also uh, the neuromuscular junction changes over time with aging. So all those things that go into muscle function uh, also would lead to a diagnosis of sarcopenia that entails uh, a functional uh, assessment. 
Okay. This next question, I guess you can both comment as well. Is muscle loss equal in the fast twitch and slow twitch muscles? And if so, what are the possible reasons for differences? I can chime in there first too. So it's preferential to fast twitch fibers. So type two fast twitch fibers are innervated by the large alpha motor neurons. And as Jack said, the neuromuscular junction is preferentially, those motor neurons are preferentially lost with age. So that the fast two type, and this is dogma that's been mostly shown in animals, rats and mice, the type two fibers then become denervated. And as I said, it's possible that a slow motor neuron will, will sprout and re-innervate the fast twitch fibers, which results in fiber type grouping, that you get groups of type one slow twitch fibers in older individuals as a result of this sprouting and re-innervation by a slow motor neuron. If the type two fibers are not re-innervated, then they're lost or atrophy and shrinking or non-functional. So you do see this switch from a fast twitch to a more slow twitch type one fiber phenotype with the fibers being grouped belonging to a single motor unit, which is one of the reasons why strength is lost in addition to the many others that we've talked about during the, the program and that type one fibers have more fat in them, which normally is supplied to the mitochondria. So is a good thing, but in older people, the extra accumulation of fat that isn't necessarily functional is not used as fuel because mitochondrial function is defective it just all sort of feeds on itself. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure I can Jack, uh, do any better than that. Thanks, Charla. But it, it is interesting to look at differential loss of strength uh, according to different variables. And one thing that kind of fascinates me is you look at percentage decline in strength. The lower extremity loses strength in old age faster than the upper extremity. And why that is, and this is a percentage loss. Of course, our legs are stronger than our arms, but uh, we lose a greater percentage. I can't tell you the reason why, but certainly it has really important implications for, for loss of mobility. Okay, great. This person has asked, uh, what happens during a uni unilateral paralysis and also after spinal cord injury? Do these changes relate to loss of neuronal input? Yes, absolutely. So what happens is following spinal cord injury, for example, there's still, even if the motor neuron's there, but it's not firing any longer, so there's no neuronal input, that what happens in that case, unlike with aging, is that you lose your slow twitch type 1 fibers because the default is this, and then it's kind of counterintuitive, and it, it, it default is what are 2x fast twitch fibers in humans and so the the muscle goes almost entirely 2x and so it's it becomes almost exclusively very glycolytic fast twitch you lose both type 1 and even 2a fibers which are the more oxidative normally your muscles are sort of 50 50 2A and type 1. And there are some 2X fibers present as hybrids, but they're generally not very beneficial except in really highly trained athletes. And so someone who is more sedentary has a higher proportion of 2X fibers. And in the spinal cord injured, they're almost exclusively 2X. Okay. Jack, this one is for you. How would you diagnose sarcopenia in clinical practice? Is it just a measure of critical muscle mass? And if yes, how would you assess that? No, you know, when we kind of first got into this business, we thought it would be like osteoporosis, where you do a DEXA scan and you know how much bone someone has. And uh, after a certain amount of research, it was found that 
that just muscle mass as measured by DEXA was not a very good measure. It wasn't predicting uh, outcomes like functional outcomes. It wasn't predicting mortality very well. So we knew we had to do more. And certainly in a, in a clinical setting, we're going to have to do more than, than just a DEXA scan. And, uh, it's probably the way to go is this, a sequential approach. Uh, patients will come in and complain of loss of strength that they can't get out of a chair by themselves anymore, that walking upstairs is really difficult for them. And that should, you know, kind of click off a clinical assessment. And, and you can start by simply, and this was the recommendation of this, the, the latest uh, sarcopenia definition and outcome consortium, the SDOC, an international consortium, was, was to use a gait speed and a grip strength, two things that can easily be done in the doctor's office. And we do have cut points there. And that would give you a good indication that, that this patient did have sarcopenia if they were below those cut points for, for function and strength. And then we're hoping that perhaps okay. this, this D3 creatine measure will come in later as a simple test to do and maybe a, a better way of identifying loss of actual muscle, not just lean mass. All right. Thank you so much. I'm going to take one last question in the interest of time because I know we're a couple minutes over. So this last question is, why hasn't the targeting of the increased uh, reactive oxygen species in skeletal muscle been exploited as a therapeutic target in sarcopenia? Well, well, I can say that I believe people are trying to. I think the most of the approaches thus far have not really been very effective. Frankly, antioxidants haven't been as effective as one might have hoped, but there's certainly avenues out. One uh, pharmacologic that I know Jack's familiar with it now, you know, trying to increase NAD in muscle by using inhibitors of NNMT or nicotinamide riboside, which would then increase some of the downstream consequences of ROS, you know, repair DNA, improve mitochondrial function and things are being tested clinically and in preclinical models. There are other, I think, you know, some of the flavanols that have antioxidant properties are being tested, but basically, you know, beetroot juice, just there are some things that do seem to have some antioxidant properties that are currently being tested, but frankly, none have so far been very effective. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.